Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. One of the types of guests I enjoy having most are the people I call professional fans. People who have taken their love of something and actually turned it into a way of making a vocation out of it. Zoe Plate is my guest today, and she is one of the best examples of this. Let's get started. On mic today, we have Zoe Plate. How are you doing this fine evening? I am doing well. Exhausted, but well. I'm sorry. Uh, you had a busy day so far? Oh, it's a good exhausted. I've been traveling. Oh, I love travel. Yeah. Where have you been? Been to San Francisco and then Minneapolis. Ah. So it's been uh, it's been quite a week. I would imagine that's quite a round trip you had there. Yeah. Well, you uh, you have a blog on which you've written extensively about a couple of different subjects, and you have worked with promoting the MST3K live tour. That's quite a range of experience. Yeah. Um, so just to specify, there are like three different live tours going on. There's the official MST3K live tour with Joel. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the occasional live show that Rift Tracks will stage um, in Nashville. And then there's the Mads Are Back, which is um, specifically Trace Beaulieu and Frank Conniff. And mm-hmm. those are the two guys who I worked with. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up because... Uh, I have not been able to see the Mads Are Back or the MST3K live tour. Mm. Um, I was a huge fan of Cinematic Titanic back in the day. Yes, absolutely. I, I saw that show probably eight or nine times while they were touring. So fond really? memories of that. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. I wish I could have seen it that many times, too. Yeah, um, it got to the point where I would show up at the table at the end of the show. And they're like, oh, Aaron's back. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're How really you... friendly guys. So, oh, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the first time they were in, I want to say it was Dallas, uh, They, I, there was this little blurb on the internet where uh, Trace had said, hey, we're going to have a meet and greet before the show at this little video store. And it was just this little hole-in-the-wall mom-and-pop video store, and yeah. it was like, th- I couldn't find the blurb after that. I just had, I read it once, and I'm like, I'm going to find this. And just when I'm starting to think of maybe I just got pulled on a hoax, I hear Crow's voice say, hey, everybody. Oh, man, that's like a dream come true. It really was. Yeah, totally. Um, And this was before Cinematic Titanic, you said? This was for Cinematic Titanic. Oh, this okay. One of gotcha. the first two or three shows they did. Oh, yeah, I bet um, they were just picking up steam. And so the people who knew about them were limited enough that they could afford to find a hole in the wall. When I mm-hmm. saw them, it was in 2013. Uh, the Castro Theater in San Francisco, and they were so popular that the guys were like, you know, nicely trying to shuffle people along and get everybody through the line. They were just overwhelmed with people. They oh, were so excited. It's a good problem to have, but yeah, I yeah. can't imagine being in that situation. So could you compare the other shows you're doing to what you were seeing those years ago? Um. Oh, definitely. Um. I would say that the shows that uh, I have worked with for Trace and Frank specifically have been a lot more um, kind of, uh, f- I don't know, familiar, friendly, not fr- that's implying cinematic Titanic's not friendly, but um, Trace and Frank have been very um, like smaller audiences who get more time to talk to the guys when the show's all done. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit more just familiar. Um, mm-hmm. And that's been awesome because one thing I've found with the MST3K community is that they are very intent on getting to know their heroes from the TV show 
because those heroes from the TV show were always so accessible feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel like your best friend and that's why you want to watch the movie with them. Mm-hmm. So that uh, the fact that Trace and Frank have been able to um, get people more time to ask questions and just mill about the lobby while they were signing autographs and stuff. That was amazing. And that it has makes, been amazing. That makes a lot of sense. And just thinking if you go back to the original run of MST3K, a good chunk of it was like the midnight showings were the big thing. And most people don't watch those with their family. They watch it after work or before they go in for the morning shift. And it's like, those are your friend movie watching friends there. You don't have anybody else at midnight to watch with. Yeah. And you know, you don't really have to because you've got the company of the people in the theater seats. It's very mm-hmm. charming. Um, to me, mystery science theater is a lot like a lullaby in that you feel safe with these people near you. And you feel relaxed, and so you're able to just drift off to sleep to the sound of a terrible, terrible movie in the background. That is one of the best ways I've ever heard the show described, so I definitely have to write that down before I forget it. That's awesome, Um, yeah. So if you were to – I would also say that when I would see people at Cinematic Titanic, that was a time I could actually just greet people, walk up to them – strike up a conversation and I'd say goodbye by saying, watch out for snakes. Yes. And they always get it. You know, I got to tell you, um, sometime back I was with a, a guy for some amount of time. And, um, when we broke up, the last thing he said to me very amicably, very amicably, he said, watch out for snakes. It was the very last thing he said to me because that's how core this is to my character. That's mm-hmm. how important it is, uh, to watch out for snakes. But it's so easy to get those taglines from the show and then use them um, to like a like a clarion call for other fans. Mm-hmm. Like you can just do this, you know, the AOK symbol to any Misty and they'll go, it stinks. And they know what that means. Yes, and they do. From a psychology standpoint, you and this stranger that you've just encountered immediately have something deeply in common mm-hmm. because it stinks doesn't just mean that you've both seen experiment number two or three pod people. Um, in my nerd voice, that's um, it, it doesn't just mean you've seen that episode. It means you've seen at least most of them and you've connected on that point. It's awesome. And it's one of those moments where the absurdity of the movie and the bad writing, the bad acting, the bad whatever have you, it it transcends that. And it just becomes a, a moment of like when you would hear say, I don't care or we like it yeah. very much. It's like we that like just... it very much. Yeah. How many we like it very much moments do you have in your day-to-day life? I would say at least once a day. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. Just forget you. We like it very much. <laughs> I think for everybody, the the line of choice is a little bit different. Um, for me, uh, when I'm driving, for example, I always think, well, pass if you're gonna. Mm-hmm. And that's just a little throwaway line. I think it's Joel who says that one. He just throws it away in a movie, but it's stuck with me. And something about these lines, these jokes from the show are just so perfectly concise and so well delivered that they stick in your head. Uh, in college, we that was the time we were all discovering MST3K, the movie, because it wasn't a, didn't have a wide release. I kind of rolled around, and you really discovered it on video, most likely. And the line at the beginning when they're getting into the van and the, the, the Jeep, it's like, weenie man away. The running gag would be every time somebody would leave the dinner table just before they would <laughs> round the door. Weenie man away. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh my gosh. And again, you can just ad- adopt that into your life here and there. 
Yeah. And it's funny how specific um, some of those lines get to be. Like, um, there's another line from the movie. Yeah. And if my hands were made of metal, that would mean something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very that just out of context. That doesn't make a lot of sense. It's very specific. But there have been a couple times in my life when I actually have gotten to use that line. And it's so validating and rewarding, even if nobody around me knows what the hell I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And they probably won't. And that's OK. Because I, the I'm... right people will get this. Yes. I call that the Joel Robinson principle. Um, oh, that's time, funny. Uh, he had a, I'm going to butcher this, but when they were writing the show, people would often say to Joel, do you want to make this joke? Because it's a really weird, obscure joke that nobody's going to get. And he would say, the right people will get it. Yeah. And that's become my mantra for when people would come up to me and talk about podcasting or science fiction or writing or whatever they're passionate about, they're like, I don't know if I want to do this because nobody's going to get it. And I will just say, the right people will get it. We uh, had a couple talks about, my previous guest was a podcaster, a big one. Um, We'll get to that later. But I would make the point that there are 7 billion people on this planet. It doesn't matter if 98% don't get it. The the chunk that do get it is huge. Huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's funny. I call it the Joel Hodgson principle, but I guess it's one in the same. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that that interview uh, where he said that it was 1992. This is MST3K, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, was the name of the, the little mini doc that Pendulette hosted mm-hmm. for Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. And um, every time I see that little section of that documentary where he says, we never ask ourselves who's going to get this. We always say the right people will get this. Okay. It gives me chills every damn time. I love it. I live my life that way. And see, now I knew I had that in my head from somewhere, and you just told me what special it was. So I will have to go back and find that again and rewatch it. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to help. (laughs) So um, you also write about MST3K on your blog as well. I do. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting little collection of stories. I uh, when I was working with the Mads, I would often travel with them. So I got to go on several excursions over the 18 months or so that I was with them. And um, they were all amazing. They were just beautiful, fantastic opportunities to get to know my heroes as people instead of just putting them up on a a pedestal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've written down some of the more memorable instances over the past few years that I've been able to spend time with them. And I've got a, a ton more in my back pocket. I just haven't put them down on paper yet. I strongly encourage you to do that because that's what you're looking at. There is essentially the journal of a true fan on their journey deeper and deeper into, into creativity. Basically, you don't know what's going to come from that. And I'm not going to suggest to um, guess for that, but don't let that go. Definitely write that down. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, I've got plans. I've got plans. Okay, um, cool. I, I definitely want to write a more um, official book about mystery mm-hmm. science theater. I don't know what angle it's going to take yet. On one hand, I could do sort of um, a biography of the show and stick mm-hmm. to the facts, or I could do more of an, uh, a book on an op-ed, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, my opinions about the show and my experiences as a fan. Or maybe I could combine them. I'm not sure. But either way, a book is coming. And actually, I have considered calling it The Right People Will Get This as the title of the book. That would be amazing. Yeah. I think I think it's um, I think it's due. It's just long past due. People have written all of these essays. Um, 
and interesting academic articles about, you know, the philosophy or the psychology or the the media interaction of MST3K, but Mm -hmm. nobody's like written down the extensive history of how the show happened. Mm -hmm. I want to do that. You absolutely should. I mean, there it's out there. If you the original episode guide and MST3KInfo.com, the Usenet archives, the information is there, but it is so scattered to the four winds, and it needs somebody like you to put it together while it's still somewhat intelligible before we lose it for for the decades. Do right. That. Exactly. Like um, I I mourn the loss of um whatever was taped that just hasn't made it onto digital. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and before something like that happens again, where our media gets phased out um, in exchange for a newer technology and we lose more information, mm-hmm. I want to get it all together, just like you're saying. And um, I also want to add the spin of being somebody who was kind of on the inside mm-hmm. or is kind of on the inside and who knows mm-hmm. these guys. Because I think um, if somebody approached a book project about the history of MST3K, but they really had no access to the people who made the show. Mm-hmm. This, the scope of their book would be very limited. Indeed. So I think I can I can bring sort of a personal touch. And, and having read the books, uh, Joel's book, not Joel's book, Mike's book, Kevin's mm-hmm. book, the MST3K guide, I, I mean, you can tell that this was th- these people worked very well together. It was an extremely close knit group of people. There was a lot of in jokes. There was a lot of inside humor, uh, stories that probably only they get. That is something that. Somebody like you needs to grab and, and you know, put into words because nobody else is going to get that just from reading show notes. Right, exactly. Um, I think that there are layers upon layers of takeaway mm-hmm. of, of like lessons to be learned from what we're seeing unfold in this mystery science universe. And I think that as somebody who has studied psychology and just as somebody who's extremely introverted and likes to sit and just think about you know, robot puppets for hours at a time by herself. Um, I'm, I'm a fairly, I'm, I'm a candidate for writing that story. And I'm, I'm kind of uh, releasing, you know, those layers of um, psychology and in jokes and history and everything that's kind of not quite uh, put in one volume yet. Mm-hmm. I want to be the person to do that. So you're going to talk about the fan journey. Let's talk about your journey. How did you find the show? Well, um, okay, TLDR, because um, we don't have another eight years to go into it, unfortunately. That's how long I've been a fan. Um, I So I grew up with um, pretty severe chronic depression, and I found myself kind of distancing myself from humanity You know, I felt like nobody really understood me. Nobody knew how to make me smile. You know, all of these terrible aspects of clinical depression. And then, out of nowhere, a man in a red jumpsuit and his stupid robots made me laugh. And it was just one instance. The episode was Teenagers from Outer Space. And um, oddly enough, I, I I remember it was my sophomore year of high school. And I woke up the next morning after watching that episode and I just felt different and better. And I realized very slowly that I had come to like connect with these people I had seen on screen. I had come to admire them, to enjoy them and to feel kind of comforted by them. You know, they made me laugh. And that is an impossible thing when you're depressed. 
So um, that was that was a small miracle that I pursued. You know, I got to know more of the show. I irritated the hell out of my friends talking about it. Um, I got to know the creators over time. And um, I just kind of took that one little spark of joy that this thing brought me amidst all the darkness. And I followed it. And I found lots of friendship and lots of community and lots of laughter. That makes a lot of sense um because when i said that your your blog hits a broad range of topics at first glance writing about mst3k and writing about depression don't seem to click that and it doesn't seem to be a natural blending of topics but when you look at it as the fact that this that one influenced your appreciation for the other suddenly it makes a heck of a lot of sense and please don't think that you're the only person who had to take that journey there because no. One thing we found uh, doing the show, and the reason I started doing the show, is that fandom helps people in a lot of ways. Number one, it gives them something to help them deal with the, the real stuff in life. The fact that you can find a show about puppets and monsters and, and aliens and and use that as just your, your – I don't want to use the word crutch because that is not – but it is your shield. It is a, a – it is something to give you control over that aspect of your life. It is something to help you find a better path forward. That's really special. I could not agree more. And I think that the idea that the right people will get this applies perfectly to this situation where you take a fandom about mm -hmm. something initially silly mm -hmm. and then you extract from it something really meaningful. Because there are majorities of people out there who if i tried to explain this especially if they haven't seen the show mm -hmm. they'd go wait what so you wait so you have borderline personality disorder and you think you were saved by pieces of plastic that were being voiced by guys in their 60s like yeah well when you say it that way it makes no sense but the way you just put it that reaches people mm-hmm because there are a lot of people out there who have very similar stories to mine. And, and let's let's look at it this way, because somebody could come up to you and say, you're dealing with major depression. Sure. You, you need therapy. You need drugs. You need all whatever you need. I mean, there people can talk to you and say, this is what you need to get better. And that's they're helping you. But at the same time, if you can say, hey, I have this problem, but I'm looking at this TV show and it's about, you know, watching Japanese monster movies and these puppets make jokes over it. But you're seeing a guy who has no human contact. He's in the middle of nowhere. This could be the work. This could drive him to suicide if this was an actual human being in a real right. situation. But what does he do? He builds friends who actually have personalities of their own i mean he doesn't build like me too ass kissers he builds people who make fun of him and, and why would he do that because that's what friends do. friends sometimes are jerks but they're still people we still care about them he still cares about these robots and he starts to look at things and say this is silly i'm seeing I, he recognizes the silliness of his own situation he recognizes the silliness and says i don't have to give in to this I, I can I can rise above this and make fun of it because it's the only thing I can do. But damn it, I'm going to do it. Beautiful. I um, 
I've thought about that a lot. I've thought about how strange it is that the whole premise of this show is that you should really just relax because it's just a show. Mm-hmm. But I think when the theme song of the series tells you that the plot doesn't matter, that kind of gives you license to read into it as much as you need to. Mm-hmm. So it's one, so you're you're perfectly able to say, okay, this is dumb. It's super cheesy. I can see I can see Trace's hand as he puppets Crow. You know, I can tell that it's his voice in, you know, Dr. Forrester and whatever, you know, you can see all the cracks in the universe. And you can also choose to kind of read into what's going on, like you've just described, and say, wow, this person was really hopeless. He made his friends out of thin air, found genuine connection, and that was what kept him going. I think that that's not the message that was supposed to be conveyed from this TV show. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, I've talked to Trace and Frank and, and a bunch of these people about it who made the show, and they're like, you're reading into this. Mm-hmm. And I say, I know, but that's okay, because I'm allowed to, because it's art. Mm-hmm. And they're like, eh, it's kind of art. And I'm like, shut up, it's art. Yeah, no. Sometimes and, and I have to remind them. They don't have to have intended. In fact, it's almost better if they didn't intend it, because that keeps them from feeling like they have to accomplish this they have to make it bigger it's it's genuine in what it is in this way they wanted to make something cute and silly and when we look at that and we say this is cute and silly and i kind of need some cute and silly in my life right now right if, if they were trying to make something deep and profound it wouldn't have actually worked no it would not have been nearly as deep and profound no. not nearly because what they did instead was they created kind of a canvas of silliness for mm-hmm. other people to extract what they need from it. Yeah. In a very meta emotional kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just, I love, I love this show for that reason. It's so dumb and yet it means everything to me, but it's kind of like how you could say to somebody, Hey, I'm holding a little piece of um, lithium carbonate. All it is is a salt, right? It's two elements that form a salt crystal um that's silly you don't really need that but of course some people do because lithium is a life-saving drug um lithium has impact on suicidal thoughts and tendencies it alleviates them a lot and i've been taking it for 10 years and i need it even though it's just a silly little salt crystal and that's how i feel about mystery science theater it's a silly little puppet show and i need it to save my life now i'm singing the sodium song in my head so please (laughs) pardon me for just a second (laughs) Get through it. You got it. Okay. Okay. But now, I mean, if we if we take it as that, and I lost my train of thought on that. I'm sorry on that. No worries. That song gets stuck in your head for sure. Um. So yeah, but again, it's silly, but it it, it does mean something, and it's smart. That's where I was going to take this next. Is that it's smart because it has references. It make it's the kind of show that. You need to know a lot just to get even half the jokes. You need to think quickly because sometimes the what they're talking about is not obvious on the surface things. It's a show that rewards you for actually thinking, and not enough of our life actually does that. That was beautiful. I'm going to go back and uh, listen to that again once this podcast is released and just write that down because that's beautiful. It rewards you for thinking about it. I agree. Um, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I think that dry humor and sarcastic humor, when it's not used to be super mean, I think that it's probably the smartest humor. Um, I can agree with that. I, And that's more like of a vague 
a nebulous concept than I would know how to put into words. It just seems like if you can mock something, you understand it. Mm-hmm. You can't mock something unless you understand it. So it, it sure. you kind of are selecting for people who understand um, not just old movies, but also the pop culture that goes into making the jokes. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a little more difficult as the years go on when they're not talking about stuff that's relevant today. Um, for example, you watch a show from season three, four, five, they're talking about things, you know, references of commercials and politics from the early 90s. And at the same time, they might have been talking about stuff that was old then, you know, sitcoms from the 60s. And you have to keep that your head in that zone. Yeah, and that's a big reason why I feel oftentimes like I've been born out of time. Um, I'm definitely more acquainted with the culture of the 90s and before because of this TV show than I am acquainted with pop culture. So when I go watch like a Jonah episode, I hear a lot of references to people whose names I recognize because they're modern, Mm -hmm. but I don't really, it doesn't strike me as being as funny because it just feels like, I don't know, like a a cheap shot to take a, to take a shot at something modern, you know, that everybody Mm -hmm. knows just because everybody knows it. Whereas if I'm listening to uh, Frank make Patty Duke jokes, um, you know, 30 years ago, from and Patty Duke being a show that was from like the 50s and 60s, so 30 years before that, um, I feel I don't. It just it clicks something in me. It makes me feel more at home. I like those old references better. It's a little easier to make an older reference when you know what's going to stand the test of time. There's things Perfect. that. You could reference uh, My Mother the Car, which is something that only a tenth of the people could recognize compared to the Patty Duke show. Um, I, I mean, I, you can they had shows and, and, and politicians and movies and, and candies and stuff that we don't remember that only lasted for an hour. That stuff did happen, but we didn't write jokes about it years later. When Jonah right. makes a reference to something that's going on today, that might be something that's just forgotten about. Exactly. By, by this time next year. And they don't have the advantage of knowing that, so you can't hold it against them. Right. I don't. I absolutely don't. Um, they're just doing what they've always done, except that when they did it before, um, in the original series, those episodes aged. And so mm-hmm. the funniest jokes just stayed in people's consciousness because they related to pop culture topics that stood the test of time, just like you said. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I think that the references that they make in the original episodes that are like really, really buried and mm-hmm. really obscure, those are the most fun to go research. Mm-hmm. And then you can pull that out of your pocket when you're talking to your friends and be like, hey, here's a reference to something you've never heard of because the only person who's heard of it is Frank Conniff. And I heard it from him. And uh, you just feel kind of special that way. It's kind of a jerk move, but I, I like to do it occasionally. Every once in a while, you just got to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of what makes this show kind of a cult following. Mm-hmm. That and the fact that, I mean, it. Uh, I had Rebecca Hansen on a couple episodes earlier, and we kind of had to make the observation that it's not a show that people even know how to watch the first time they see it, because the reaction they get is, I can't hear over their talking. Why are they stupid robot? Why can't they shut up so I can hear the movie? And that's sensible. That's the way you watch every other movie you've ever watched in your life. 
So you have to convince people to stop watching the movie and start watching the interaction of the people to the movie. And this is that's it takes a cult mentality to do that. Yeah, that that dual attention is tough. Mm -hmm. You're watching the movie because you need it in order to understand the jokes. It's a symbiotic Mm -hmm. relationship. Um, And that's that's not easy to do. It takes kind of it takes practice. Just like you said, it's like not something that you know how to do the first time intuitively um, that you see an episode, but you do learn. And it takes some, it takes listening skills and it takes attention. It just takes a lot of things that not everybody really has necessarily. The ability to pay attention to two things happening at once and understand mm-hmm. both of those things separately and together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not the kind of thing that you can do while you're folding the laundry or washing the dishes or something like that. You, It takes your attention. It's not a show that lends itself to putting it on in the background. Not if you're going to be paying attention to the jokes, yeah. Like I said earlier, I think it's good um, as, a, as a comforting sort of white noise if you're going to tune it out. And in that sense, it's a good background show. I know a lot of people who watch it just to fall asleep at night um, because they can kind of tune their attention away from the jokes. But if you want a joke to land, yeah, you got to tune in. Absolutely. Speaking of jokes landing, there's something that has always been a little bit of a sticking point with me about the show. And you're about the only person I could actually try to see if, if you feel the same way. Shoot. This is something that they did, and it actually lasted probably longer than it should. But they would have situations where they would make a sketch about something in the movie and they would place the sketch before that actually occurred in the movie. Yes. <laughs> that happened way more often than we realize. And has it ever really bugged you? It didn't bug me in the sense that it irritated me or anything. Um, I definitely noticed it. I think that the show is so just overwhelmingly full of of broken fourth walls mm-hmm. that that type of thing doesn't really stand out as being like, oh, continuity error, because the whole show is a continuity error. You know? So I I can't say it bothered me. That's a really good point. And it also seems like it's built into the show that you're going to watch it out of order, and you're probably going to rewatch it many times over, which most shows don't actually have that confidence in the viewer. Is it confidence in the viewer? Or is it just apathy? Like, are they saying, we trust that our fans will be able to watch this show um, in any order they want? Or are they just saying, we're just going to do whatever the hell we want, and the right people will get it? I'm not sure I can answer that. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thought. Definitely worth pursuing. I'm glad I brought it up there. Yeah. I definitely noticed um, they would do that, that what you mentioned about, um, you know, doing a sketch from the movie before that had happened in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really charming, honestly, because it kind of reminds you that the people who are writing these sketches um, and performing them are the same people who watched this movie eight times to write 750 to 850 jokes about it. Mm-hmm. It it makes the whole communal aspect of the show feel very, very strong for me. Um, because it just, it reminds me that the people I'm watching act out these sketches are the people who wrote the sketches. They're the people who watch the movies. I really appreciate that. There are moments when you can just sense that after watching the movie so many times, they got so passionate and 
not passionate necessarily in a good way about something that was just so frustrating or stupid and that and they just had to get it out somehow and there were moments where it's like this joke has to go in the show and this is the hill i'm gonna die on there are some moments like that i love that too i love um i love picking out the jokes that the the silhouettes deliver mm-hmm. and then trying to determine like oh i bet mike wrote that joke but i see why they gave it to servo mm-hmm. you know trying to match the personality with the joke writer and then the joke deliverer Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun once you get to know the the people well enough. Yeah, and you can definitely see uh, <clears throat> uh, when they try to. Um, how should I say this? Uh, you can definitely set uh, when certain writers come in and leave. Uh, you you can see they bring in their own influence. Uh, for instance, jokes about politics tended to downplay quite a bit after Frank left. Mm, and, yeah. Um, when they brought in uh, Mary Jo at fifth season three, four, three. Okay, it's four. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can definitely see there were a lot more jokes about, for example, Audrey Hepburn's hat. That's the joke that you can hear that coming right out of her mouth. Exactly, and I think that was the the first joke, the first riff she ever wrote for the series. It was, and that was in Teenagers from Outer, from Outer Space, which mm-hmm. is my still my favorite episode because it was my first one. It's one of my favorites, too, so I definitely think it started off on the right foot there. I think so. I think it was perfect. So you get to be on the road with these guys. How does that come about, and how does that feel as a fan? Um, I'm still struggling to express it in words. It was a dream of mine for a really long time specifically for me because um, growing up with borderline personality disorder, there's a lot of reality confusion that can happen in the brain of somebody who has that disorder like me. And so you look at a character on TV and you say, wait, that character's animated, therefore they're not real. But this character over here, that's a real person, except it's actually just an actor playing a character that's not real. And you can see how the whole concept of TV gets really confusing to somebody who has a very tenuous grasp on reality anyway, like I did when I was really young. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I was able to watch Mystery Science Theater, look at the actors on the screen and say, okay, those are real people playing fake people, except those fake people, those characters that they're playing are actually pretty true to who the actors are in many ways. Um, And then to actually meet them and see that I was right. I finally got reality right. You know, I saw that these were real people, and then I met them, and they were real. I was right. Very, very, very rewarding. That's that's a really interesting way of looking at it, and I, I definitely want to start looking at that a little more. So you have somebody like Trace. Sure. Very sweet guy, but is in no way the evil mad scientist, the sadistic blowhard. But then you have Joel and Mike who aren't exactly like their counterparts on the show, but definitely in the ballpark. They're only a few degrees off from their characters. Was that difficult or easy for you to process? Um, it kind of depends on the scenario. I mean, I guess it's only it's easy to process when when the actor is slightly different from the character it's a little bit harder when the actor is different in a way that I maybe am not as big a fan of. Mm-hmm. 
um, because everybody has flaws. And when you get sure. to know somebody as well as I've gotten to know these guys, mm-hmm. like you do see their flaws. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to think, oh, well, such and such character wouldn't have said that or they wouldn't have felt that way. Absolutely. It's a huge challenge for anybody. Um, there have been hiccups in my relationships with the guys, as you would expect with any friend that you have for multiple years. Um, but for the most part, it's been an incredibly rewarding fandom to be a part of. I can't really say anything bad about it. Um, it's been kind of a spiritual guide to know that the people who made me laugh when I needed it the most are now friends of mine and care about me. And it's been a source of joy for years. So I can't say that, you know, the hiccups that I get with my heroes, you know, interacting with them, I can't say that that's really a huge negative thing. It's, it's, it's a surface level thing. Fair enough. Uh, Somebody asked me as I started doing the show, if I'd ever met somebody in a con or in fandom and really been taken back by the fact that they were not a great person or not who I thought they were. And I just said, look, I'm very cognizant of the fact that anybody I follow is a human being. So when I meet them and find out that they are, in fact, a human being, it's not a huge adjustment for me. It might be a small one, but it's not a big one. Yeah, it's a, it may be a disappointment, but it's not life-changing. No. You know, you can you can know that people are human, and then you can hope that they're amazing in every way. And when you meet them and they're not amazing in every way, uh, that's a disappointment, but they're still human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, regardless of what you find out, the, the talent they brought to it and the fact they put on this great performance – you can never take that away from them. What somebody does as a matter of art is that art is always there. That is eternal. The art is always there and the impact is always there. Exactly. When I uh, saw Cinematic Titanic live in San Francisco, um, gosh, oh my, was it really seven years ago? Holy cow. Um, I was in high school at the time. But um, I, uh, I brought along this um, drawing that I had made of Joel. I had made it when I first found the show at the age of 15, and I was so proud of it. It's still one of the best pieces of art I've ever produced. And I had nightmares for a long time leading up to that experience, thinking this uh, print of mine, it's not a print, it's the original, it's going to get damaged, or I'm going to ask him to sign it, and he's going to like scribble all over his own face. No, I don't know why he would do that. I was just really scared that that's something that might happen. Mm-hmm. And so I finally got through that autograph line to the very end where he was sitting and I pulled out that drawing and I told him basically that I was nervous about letting somebody else put ink down, even, even him. And he said, okay, show me where you want me to sign. And so I knelt down behind the booth and I pointed to the corner and he signed so perfectly. He made the edges of the letters of his name line up with some of the edges of the shapes in the drawing. It's just perfect. And I was so taken away um, by that moment that I decided to get that exact tattoo. See if I can show it here. It's not super easy here. I, I can catch it. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, that's a it's a copy of what he put on my drawing. Mm-hmm. Because, and I'm, I'm relating this back to what you just said. What they've done for us, what they've the art that they've created for themselves 
and the takeaway that we've had from it, that's not going anywhere. That can't change. No. It'll never be the 90s again, which no. is sad, but also beautiful mm-hmm. because it means that everything that happened is really set in stone and we can rely on those memories. Mm-hmm. And just as we were saying earlier that, you know, it's deep and profound because they didn't try to make it deep and profound. They made something genuinely cute that we now look back on and say, okay, there's more to this than, than it's more than some of its parts. People that we're getting to know are also more than the sum of their parts. If they're grouchy before they have their coffee, or if they forget to pick you up when they say they will, they're still great people. They don't, we don't have to be perfect to be good. You sound like my therapist and she's a smart lady. Um, I agree with that. Totally. I never, I never signed on to this fandom in the hopes that my heroes would be perfect. I signed on to this fandom in the hopes that they would be good enough. And they always have been, they've always been people and that's all I wanted from them. And that's, and they deliver that in spades for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes they're puppets, but mostly they're people. Yeah. But, Oh, no. Um, I was just interviewed as a one-off um, by the Damn Dirty Revival. What? I don't know what they call themselves anymore. Damn Dirty Geeks podcast, previously the Revival League podcast. Okay. They're Denver-based um, Misties. I know them. Yeah. And there's some, there's some people um, within that group who donated so many thousands of dollars to the Kickstarter to rebuild MST3K on Netflix mm-hmm. that they got to be kind of honorary associate directors and producers of the show. Very cool. Yeah, they were flown out to L.A. to watch them make the show. And they're just based in Denver, which is like eh, an hour from me. It's pretty cool. Very cool. I get to Denver every now and then. Not as often as I'd like and not for as long as I'd like. (laughs) Yeah, it's a beautiful place, but um, I'm having a hard time living where I grew up. So soon I'll be um, out of here. Where are you headed? Minneapolis. The Holy Land, of course. The Why Holy did I think Land. anything else? <laughs> I, I didn't think anything else. That's the thing. I knew I wanted to get out of Boulder. This is a really small town, and, you know, I've been here since I was a kid. I want to see other stuff. And um, every city is equally foreign, except for, well, I guess two if you count St. Paul, um, except for the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. They feel very much like home. I know the accent, I know the geography, I know the hot dish. Um, just from watching Mystery Science Theater, I feel very familiar with all that stuff. So when I went there, and I actually just got back from that trip yesterday, um, everything about the place felt really like home, even though I'd barely been there before. See that? And I, me personally, I've only been there, I was stranded there for a night, and that's the extent of my familiarity with the place. But, I mean, it was a, a wonderful city from the brief, brief that I saw of it. And, you know, if it made our own favorite show, that can't be all bad. No. Um, a lot of the environment of Minneapolis and St. Paul have really contributed to the the feeling of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, the show kind of makes you feel like you're at home and it's snowing outside and you're kind of trapped in. And you've got soup and casserole and tea and you're just, and then maybe there's a fireplace. I don't know. This is just me giving an image to the feeling I get when I watch Mystery Science Theater. 
And that's kind of what it is to live in Minnesota. You're trapped inside because of the snow drifts and the freezing cold temperatures. Um, the sub-zero temperatures, in fact. And uh, you feel cozy. And that that's everything you just said is true. I completely agree with everything. I'm going to piggyback off of that for a second and say that it's not just the feeling of the show, but the mindset that went into it. MST3K was one of the few shows, especially of its time, that wasn't designed in Los Angeles or New York. You can tell a show that's written in those places because they're written with the corporate studio mindset, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But you don't get the flavor of somebody who's sitting in Minneapolis saying, man, what if I could make a TV show, what would it be like? And then they don't worry too much about the details. No. They just do it. Everybody says, especially, I think especially to artists and writers and stuff like that, people say, don't think about your project. Just make it. Just start. Things will happen. You'll deal with them. But at least you started your project, and that mm -hmm. means you can finish. If you just mm -hmm. think about it, you'll never finish. Mm -hmm. And so Joel, in like 87, had this idea that had been kind of growing in his mind for a couple decades at that point for a TV show. And he said, wait, I have a hangar space in Minneapolis. I know this guy, Jim Mellon. He uh, is president of the local station. And maybe I'll just make this show in my garage overnight. And mm -hmm. he did. And it was awesome. And the fact that they didn't care if it was perfectly, you know, smooth or rounded at the corners, that made it what it is. And that made it amazing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm feeling his growing pains now a little bit doing this show because I'll be honest with you, it is not on a technical level what I want it to be. I really wish I could talk to people in person instead of over Skype. But you know what? It's getting done. Every episode is a little bit better than the last, and I'm really, really proud of it because I'm getting to talk to people like you. I'm getting to share your story with the people that we care about, the fans at large, who don't get to necessarily do this. And stories like yours need to be told. Stories like Jackie's need to be told. That And, and I want to be able to show the people that we look to, uh, the, the writers and actors and directors, and get them to show us the stuff that they don't get to show us on any other medium. So when Joel's putting something together in his garage 30 plus years ago, I feel for him, but I'm glad he did it. You can't know until you start no. where you're going to end up. And the only way you know where you'll end up is if you don't start, because you're going to end up with nothing. Mm -hmm. So I think that as long as the content of what you're doing is amazing and by amazing, I mean just genuine, um, you're going to have a good product and people are going to want to listen to it. People are going to want to watch it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. In my case, I hope they read it. Definitely. So when are you going to start this book? Or And if you don't want to tell me, that's fine. But if, do you have a, a plan, an agenda, or even an outline? I have I have a start. I have some okay. steps in the beginning. I have, um, first of all, the very first step for me is asking for permission from everybody who was like a major player in the show. Um, I don't want to go about writing down the history of their art um, without their permission. And it doesn't have to be legal or like a real endorsement. It can just be, uh, hey, Trace, do you mind? And he says, no, nah, go ahead. That's all I need. Uh, so that's the first step. 
I've gotten permission from most of the cast. Um, some of the cast are more difficult to get in touch with, and that's the this only reason I haven't heard from them. Uh, but apart from that, I uh, I want to do kind of a, a bit of a biography aspect of each of the people who made the show. Mm-hmm. So in that case, that dates back all the way to like mid-50s mm-hmm. through present. Um, I want to get fan feedback. I want to incorporate their personalities. I want to do exclusive interviews. Um, I'd love to make a documentary based on this someday. I have ideas. They're just not plans yet. When you say documentary, and pardon me if I get presumptuous, but I I just, fan to fan, I have to say this. I really see you almost making a sequel to the This Is MST3K special from the mid-90s with Doogie Howser, of all people, trying to introduce what he thinks of the show. You could do that for this generation, but do it better. I want to. And I want Neil Patrick Harris to be a part of it because I adore him. Um, and he's also in season 11. So that's, that's kind of a crazy, mm-hmm. crazy uh, closure there. Um, yeah. I want to, I want to take everything that's happened since that first documentary was made in 92. And I want to incorporate it into an even broader picture. And then maybe in another 30 years, when even more stuff has happened, I can make a sequel or uh, an extended version or something. But this is a story that's still being written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it needs to be updated. Absolutely. I, I, MST3K has started and stopped so many times that it, at any point it could have easily been dead to rights. I mean, when it ended in, it could have ended in season five. It didn't. They did end it in season seven. It came back. They ended after season 10. It came back. It's dead now. I'm not counting it out. No. And I've said several times, I'm not going to offer any suggestions as to how it's coming back because I don't want to jinx anything. But I have my theories and I have my hopes and that's all I'm going to say. I think I think having hopes is perfectly reasonable given what Joel has said about how he wants to keep moving it around platforms. He, he doesn't want it to, to die ever. Um, I think that's perfectly feasible. And uh, I think that when he gets back from this tour in, you know, six years or however, he's just on the road forever, um, then he'll have more time to kind of devote some thought to it. But that's just my theory. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm not suggesting anybody, but Joel really knows where it could go. But yeah. I, I have confidence in him is all I'm going to say. I have confidence in him, too. And I don't think anybody really knows where Joel's going except for Joel ever. <laughs> Having only met him at Cinematic Titanic, I can just tell he is one of those people that he's innovative beyond measure. I mean, the show itself was innovative. He the the formats he recreated were innovative. Just the idea that actually it was more of a a variety show with a movie as a background. The guy that was looking at Kukla, Fran, and Ollie from the early 60s and translated that into this, I mean, I, I look at that and I'm just in awe because so much of that is just stuff that, how can you take a silly kid show and actually make genius out of it? What he did was he created a crucible of ideas, mm-hmm. too. Elton John, Silent Running, 
um, all these old monster movies and the inventions that he made when he was a kid. He took aspects of media and aspects of his life and he threw them into a big pot, mm-hmm. gave it a little bit of structure and called it Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. And I love that. At a, at a certain point, it can be argued that nothing is original because everything is inspired by something else. Mm-hmm. With Joel's creations, you can see all of those different aspects inspiring him and he also creates something really unique, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Like he did the TV wheel, which is a, a concept that, I don't know, I wish it would have, have taken off. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was a really interesting concept to uh, put one um, solitary uh, camera in front of a large, like 32 foot spinning wheel mm-hmm. so that the cameras don't move, but the sets do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's just cool. It's like, why not turn the concept upside down? Um, and I love that he is just willing to pitch this to whoever opportunistically walks by who can lend him money or a studio. I think that's really inspiring. Yeah. And to put everything you have into something and if it doesn't pan out, which is unfortunate, but you know, you did it. You gave it everything you had. You, you created something and that's more than 99% of people do. Exactly. He got started. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's also really great. Where was I going with that train of thought? Oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I read it in a, an interview somewhere at some point. He said that he wanted to be known as the guy who creates lots of different things. Mm-hmm. But um, then he realized he could just be the guy who's known for creating mystery science theater. And, and that was kind of the turning point where he went back to making the show. And that's what we ended up with, with season 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. And when Pete, Joel left the show in season five and Mike came on and people would argue over whether it was good or bad. I, you could just see to me that Joel was the creator. He was the inventor and he had the, the invention exchange was a Joelism for sure, which is why it kind of went away after you know shortly after mike came on and mike was a maintenance man which wasn't a bad thing that was actually genius because he was the one who took what joel made and kept it running and i would argue made it better but their roles were perfectly compatible they were perfectly complementary joel and mike really were two sides of the same coin yeah one was the father and one was the brother yeah. Yeah. And I think... I, go ahead. So, oh, please go. Mike, um, Mike created a lot of the meat of the show. Mm-hmm. His sense of humor was like the content. That was the comedy content of the show. Mm-hmm. Joel's sense of humor, I don't think... I think I would say that I personally prefer Mike's in terms of just who can make me laugh out loud more often. Mm-hmm. But um, it's Joel's creativity that built the framework that Mike then filled in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's when Joel did that. I mean, you could definitely tell, at least at first, he was motivated because he couldn't invent anymore on the show. He wanted to invent, and I respect that. When he he went off, uh, he did the TV wheel, he made the Gizmonics website, he tried a couple of different things, eventually started Cinematic Titanic, which was MST3K adjacent. And then just said, hey, I'm just going to do MST3K again. He came full circle creativity, creatively, and 
I mean, I, I think he just had to do that. I'm, I'm happy he's happy. I'm also happy he's happy. You know, you don't hear that a lot in fandom. No. You hear, I, you know, I wish my creators would do whatever the hell I want them to do, but you don't hear, you know, they're doing what they want, and I'm happy that they're happy. Yeah. If he had wanted to walk away and never come back to it, I would have been okay with that, too. I, I'd hope that somebody could do it, but if he doesn't want to do it, I don't want to make him. I'm glad no. he does. Yeah, and part of what, a huge part of the charm of the original show was that nobody was making these guys do anything. They were purely choosing to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know that Trace was getting paid something like 25 bucks a week when they started at KTMA and the Comedy Channel. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing was motivating these guys more than their own internal sense of wanting to be funny and create something. Um so I don't think that forcing anybody to make Mystery Science Theater would actually make Mystery Science Theater. It would make kind of a shell. It wouldn't be funny. It wouldn't be wholesome anymore. No. Agreed. But lots of people have branched off, too. Mm-hmm. Which is really cool. Like ICWXP. Um, and then, like, Doug Benson had that Benson interruption show that was kind of very reminiscent of MST3K. Um, and you can even say that Rift Tracks and uh, Film Crew kind of branched off from Mystery Science Theater, even though it was actually those same guys. Love those. Love those, yeah. I actually, I was a huge fan of the film crew concept. I'm kind of bummed that it didn't take off further. Um, Rift Tracks is just as good, but film crew kind of had that MST3K light type of feel to it, which when there was no MST3K was very special to me. Right. Yes, and... I also noticed that Cinematic Titanic had a similar um, timeline. At mm-hmm. the very beginning of their DVD releases, which they filmed in a studio, mm-hmm. they would do sketches and they mm-hmm. would play with the silhouette style. They would have props come down from the ceiling and TARDISes and chandeliers and stuff like that. But um, what I noticed happening is the same thing that kind of happened at Film Crew, mm-hmm. which is that those sketches weren't that funny. Mm-hmm. I hate to say that. I mean, I really no. do. Um, it was Rebecca Hansen and I were talking about exactly this, and uh, she is really into improv, as I'm sure you know. Um, it's one of her main talents is to just get on stage with absolutely no material and just knock it out of the park. So a live audience is something that she relates to very, very well. And we were talking about how the original cinematic Titanic shows were very studio-oriented, high production values, the later ones, they were trying to take the live shows and copy them into a DVD format. And we both agreed that while that was admirable, it didn't work because you can't take the live experience and just put it in a bottle. Right. It's And, you know, today I was driving around listening to a live album. Um it was a live performance of one of my favorite studio albums. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. I really, I feel the energy of the audience, but when it's comedy, it's a little different than music mm-hmm. music. Like you're really tuned into what you're hearing. But for me, comedy is more about the community. So the point of going to a live show at a comedy show is to connect with the people who are there. And if you can't do that, then the, the DVD releases, it kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm glad it's there. Because yeah. I'm one of those people that I like to have everything preserved for the future because, you know, cause I spent so much of my early childhood and my teen years in the VHS era 
when if you didn't record it, it was gone forever. There were so many of my shows, it's like, I might never see this again, so I obsessively hoarded tapes of recorded stuff. Um, when DVD came around, that was... It, the unofficial launch of DVD was like 96. I think it actually hit mainstream like 98. I was 17. I had lived almost two decades thinking, I have to record this or it's gone forever. The, I'm thinking you kind of grew up in the age where you could probably get any show you wanted for 20 bucks. By the time I was old enough to appreciate media. Yeah. Yeah, there was Blockbuster and then Redbox. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. I, and... and yeah, so it's like I even if it's not a perfect experience, I want to have it because, you know, I don't want to not be able to show it to my kid one day. Right. And there's also just a lot of street cred to be gained from having stuff like mm-hmm. I have uh, multiple copies of several cinematic Titanics mm-hmm. and they're on DVD. They're the nice cover and everything. And I don't have any reason. I don't even have a way to play them. I don't have a way to play any DVD, let alone two of the same so um, I don't know why I keep them. I'm just, it's kind of that hoarding collector's mentality. <laughs> it's Mystery Science Theater related. Joel's in it. My friends are in it. I have to have it. Totally understandable. Yeah. So do you have the PlayStation Underground CD? No. What is wow. that? Okay. Uh, PlayStation Underground was a CD-based magazine from the mid-90s when the PlayStation was new. It was literally a game, but you would put it in. It only played on the PlayStation. And there was one issue, which was like the only one that was ever worth money, where they got the crew together to riff PlayStation commercials. And I'm sure somebody's put this on YouTube, but. What year was this? This was like 96, okay. 97. Okay. But yeah, there, there's look, look up PlayStation Underground MST3K and it'll get you all the details. But yeah, this is like really, really hard to find, and I don't even have a copy of it, so mm. if that tells you anything. Hmm. Challenge accepted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so while we're we're wrapping on that, uh, where can people keep in touch with you and all your misadventures? My misadventures are um, logged in terrifying detail in Twitter uh, at Ms. Misery, or you know what? Just look at my full name, Zoe Plate. Um, my handle's too hard to describe. Sure. Uh, my blog is called Miss Misery. Um, I chronicle the misadventures of having depression and borderline personality disorder, as well as the weird, poignant ways that those relate to mystery science theater. And um, that's really about it. I don't have a Tumblr anymore. Not since high school. Well, I'm going to make sure all of that and everything we talked about gets put into our show notes at my website, AaronBosick.com. And I definitely want to have you back because I don't think we're done with this conversation. I don't think so either. I don't think this conversation can be done. No, no. Completed, no. So we'll, we'll be talking about that, and I will be glad to have you back on real soon. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Aaron. I would like to thank Zoe for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. For the Geek Resources part of the show today, I have to acknowledge a trend that I've been seeing in some of the episodes we've had. In only 21 episodes, we've had more than a few that deal with issues of 
depression, suicide, and other forms of mental illness. So I'm going to take a step to the side of a regular geek resource and not necessarily pick up something science fiction related, but something that is just kind of a tangent issue. NAMI.org is the website for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And if you have a issue in your life that is not really something you can deal with on your own, or you know somebody in that situation, this would be a great place to start to help them get the help they need. And for the community building part of the show, I'm going to make a suggestion. If you want to help the show, try going onto the podcast platform of your choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and leave a review for the show or recommend somebody else take a look at the show. That would help a lot. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can always write to me at bossigpodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.